0: You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. All right, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Acts chapter 2, where we're going to be today. And feel free to pull the sermon outline out as well, if that helps you follow along. We are going through the New Testament book of Acts. It's the history of the early church after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. It's the account of how do we get from Jesus to Christians? How does that happen? And and we're looking at it specifically through the lens of how does the church stay together? You know, it's so easy for things to sort of fall apart, for there to be division. How is it that the early followers of Jesus were able to thrive in unity after Jesus himself leaves the scene? or at least from a visible standpoint? What is it that they did or didn't do or what did they practice or what did they have to work on in order to maintain a sense of unity? And the reason we're talking about that is because we have the same questions today. How do we live, a lives, how do we live lives of unity together as a church, as families, as a community? What, what does it look like for us to move towards each other rather than away or against each other? How do we live lives of unity? And today in the passage that Evelyn just read, we hear really one of the most idealistic pictures of the New Testament church. Now, I say idealistic because not that it was untrue, but there were certainly things that went wrong in the early Christian movement. We'll talk about those in future weeks. But in Acts 2, we see when everything was going right, how beautiful and how compelling of a community it could be. They wanted to be together. They enjoyed being together. They helped one another. And in the process, it was winsome and appealing to the community around them. And I think that at least my heart quickens at this passage. I would love to be part of a community like that. And I imagine you would too. And it's ironic, I think, from a cultural standpoint, that we hear that unity comes not because of faith, but uh, in spite of it. Every year, uh, we're sort of bludgeoned during New Year's Eve, at least I am when I watch, Toronto on TV on New Year's Eve, with uh, John Lennon's atheist anthem, Imagine, right? Imagine there's no religion, nothing to live or die for, right? That, that's how people are going to come together, and we'll all live as one, right? or however it goes. Um, I thought that was funny. All right, never mind. <laughs> and so I think it's worth sort of asking the question, can our faith lead to unity? Or, or what would it take for our faith to lead to us being people of unity? Was Lennon right? Is it the sort of thing, that we, the vestige of antiquity that we need to sort of push away if we actually want to live connected lives with other people? Or is our faith actually a source of unity rather than a barrier to it? So that's what we're going to talk about today in in Acts chapter 2. It may be a familiar passage for you uh, because it it is so idealistic and so beautiful. But even if it is familiar, I hope that uh, we'll take time to sort of think through this together, especially starting here in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. These four things seem to be a hallmark of what the early Christian movement was about, what they devoted their time, attention, and efforts to. It's not everything the early church did. Uh, we'll see in the rest of the New Testament that there's other things they did as well. But, but these seem to be four pillars for what it meant for them to be a church together, for them to be a community of faith together. That they listened to the apostles' teaching, that they had fellowship together, that they uh, shared the breaking of bread. We'll talk about what that means in a few minutes. And prayer. And it's worth thinking about what are our lives look like in response to these, and how do these four things help us grow in unity? Because if we're going to be a unified people, it's not a program that can be put on from up front, but it's people that we are throughout the church. And the first thing that that Luke mentions that they did was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Um, This was important because, if you remember last week with Pastor Tim, he talked about how in in earlier parts of chapter 2, there was only 120 Christians at the time that the Spirit comes. But in Peter's first sermon, about 3,000 believed. So 97% of the Christian faith is now made up of people who have been Christians for less than a week, right? So this is now anyone who was here last week, you are now an elder, right? Like it's kind of, everyone got promoted, right? Uh, we got to teach all these people what, uh, what's true, what's good, what Jesus taught. And this became the, the foundation of what it meant to be a Christian uh, in this time, was that we would gather together to hear the apostles' teaching. Now... Think about this for a second with me, Uh, because I know it sounds obvious, of course they got together and they had a sermon, that's what we're doing right now, but think about Luke's claim that that for the Christians to be united, one of the ways to do that, one of the core ways was through teaching doctrine and theology. Do you you think that's true? Do you think that knowing more of the Bible and knowing more of theology is going to help us move towards one another in unity? I've met a lot of people that would say the exact opposite, right? Like, the more we know, it seems like the more divided we are, right? Like, doesn't knowledge puff us up? If we want to be united, shouldn't we be united through shallowness? Right? Like, we can all agree on, on just that Jesus was cool, and, and we'll just we'll stay united by not going too deep. But the Bible gives a very different picture, right? That it's knowing what is true of God that actually gives us a deeper sense of connectivity together. This is uh, true even sociologically. There, there's a, a saying, that identity is the most ardent when it is the most shallow. Uh, identity, our sense of, of identity, often is most precarious when we don't really know much about our faith. But when we're steeped and rooted in the truths of the gospel, it should move us towards one another in unity. Now, I, I understand that maybe you've had an experience, and maybe I've had an experience, where people have sort of been difficult and obstinate when they've gotten a little bit of book learning and they've become very difficult to be united to. But when we really think carefully about our faith, it should move us towards one another in unity. Think about what it is that we believe as Christians. We believe that every person here and around the world is made in God's image, representing and reflecting him, regardless of race or ethnicity or ability or background or gender, that that all of us are made in God's image how uniting that can be. And similarly, all of us have rejected God. None of us is pure or holy on our own. We have all chosen to go our own way. We've all chosen to shake our fist at God and what we've done and left undone. We're all in the same boat, and that boat is sinking. Similarly, all of us can only find salvation through Jesus. None of us can climb our way up the mountain to God on our own. None of us can brag our way there or earn our way there or buy our way there. All of us are in the same boat that we need a Savior who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's true not just for for people in here, but every person who has ever lived in the world. When we internalize that faith, when we internalize what the Apostles teaching, what, what the creed is that we just sang a few minutes ago, it should move us towards one another in unity rather than above one another in hierarchy. That's why the early Christians were known for being people committed to fellowship. Now, Often fellowship in churches just refers to, to talking to each other after the service, being kind to one another, asking each other about their lives, and maybe sharing a cup of coffee together. And certainly that's a, a good thing to do, and, and I hope that uh, you, you enjoy the, the fellowship, the time of camaraderie together here at church. But fellowship's about more than that. It's more than just uh, talking together and being nice to each other. It's about a way that we see one another the early Christians were known for seeing one another as fellows, as uh, equals, that regardless of your identity out there and how we ranked against one another out there, in the Christian community there is no one above another or better than another. Not that our identities evaporated, not that we ceased to be men or women uh, of different ethnicities or different backgrounds, but that they were not used to weaponize against each other or to rank ourselves against one another. In fact, in Paul in Galatians 3 says that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, barbarian or Scythian, male or female. Right? That, that we are not to rank ourselves above one another, but that in Christ we are equal, that we are fellows, that there is fellowship in the church. I wonder how you're doing at that, at, at either actively or, or, or passively ranking ourselves against each other. Do you find yourself deferring to people that you think are, are further ahead than you are based on their class or their status in society? Or do you find yourself resentful or angry about those things? Do you find yourself in church tending to gravitate towards people that you think are more like you and away from people who are less like you? Um, do you find yourself engaged in fellowship or in, um, in more uh, worldly ways of, of ranking ourselves against each other? Do you have relationships that cross boundaries simply because of Jesus? Do you see your brothers and sisters in Christ here and around the world as your equal? For the early Christians, this is where a source of unity came, and it's why when they would go from town to town, they could trust that their brothers and sisters would receive them, because in Christ there was equality. They they listened to the apostles' teaching, they engaged in fellowship, there was breaking of bread. Now, there's a question here of like, when he says breaking of bread, is he just talking about they shared meals together? Like that they actively ate together? Or is there something more sacred that he's talking about here? And you might notice the use of the word the there. He says, they, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. It's kind of a weird way to say it in Greek. It'd be like saying, uh, do you want to go have the lunch? And you'd say, no one says the lunch. Like, do you want to go have lunch? Would be how we'd say that in English, it's similar in Greek. Uh, But to say the lunch would imply that something important was happening. Like, is this the lunch before the wedding? Or is this the lunch we have every year on my birthday? Like, if we're putting the word the there, it probably implies there's something sacred. Why do I point this out? What they are devoting themselves to seems to be the practice of the Lord's Supper, of taking the bread and the wine in honor of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, even as he told his disciples to do on the night before he was betrayed. It seems like... That early Christians were devoted not just to being together as friends, but to being together in worship. That this was something that they were deeply committed to. And similarly, in the church today, it's something that we need to be committed to being a sacramental community that worships based on the gospel together. Lastly, there's, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Again, you see that word, the, here, implying that this isn't just that they were committed to being praying people, so that would be wonderful and be wonderful for us today, but that their unity came from praying together. Uh, there's reason, I think, that they probably adopted the Jewish practice of praying three times a day, sometimes uh, maybe praying the same prayers based on the Lord's Prayer. One of the first uh, documents after the New Testament was called the Didache, and it recommended that Christians would pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Now... I don't necessarily do that, though I would like to. Um, I should. Maybe it would be a better way to say that. Uh, but it implies that this is probably what the early Christians were doing, that they were having their prayer lives shaped by the Lord's Prayer. And think about with a minute, think about with me for a minute, if you know the Lord's Prayer well, how much it implies, uh, relies on, and encourages unity. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today, regardless of our own personal resources, our daily bread. Not just give me my daily bread because I need it, but give us enough for all of our needs. Forgive us our sins as we forgive one another and deliver us from evil. Right? The Lord's Prayer implies and relies on a concept of unity. And this is what shaped the unity of the early church. So why am I spending time on this? Well, these four practices, I think, give us a minimum of a playbook for how we can embrace and encourage unity in our church. And this is not something that I can make into a program, I can't make it into a slide, I can't uh, systematize it. It's something that you and I have to choose to do as people, as, as members of this church, being people that are devoted to learning God's word. That can include listening to sermons, but that's not the end of it. It's being people who are devoted to understanding what's true about God so we can move towards one another in unity. Being people who are committed to fellowship, does that include uh, talking to people at church? Sure. But more than that, it includes a view that sees one another as equals in Christ, regardless of how the world sees us. A third, it means that we're devoted to the breaking of bread. We're devoted to having our lives and worship shaped by the gospel. And lastly, that we're devoted to prayer. That we're devoted to seeing the world through God's eyes and praying for His Spirit to empower us to be a people of unity. Um, These four spiritual disciplines reinforce our Christian faith, but they also reinforce our unity. And as we're unified together, it helps us grow in our faith together. Um, All right, I know that sounded like the whole sermon, but there's there's a lot more, I promise. Uh, Or I'm sorry, I'm not sure what to say. In the second part of the passage, we want to see sort of what happens with this. Like, if, if you did this, if I did this, if we did this as a church, what would happen to us? What sort of people would we become? What sort of impact would we have on the world out there? Does this matter? Does this have any impact for, for our lives and our community? That's what, Paul, that's what Luke's going to talk about in the second part. We're going to pick it up in verse 44. And before I read this, before I read verse 44 and 45, um, I'm gonna imagine that this might, these verses might raise some questions or some confusion or some anxiety for you. Uh, And that's probably because we don't don't do today what's described here in verses 44 and 45. And so a lot of us feel anxiety when we read parts of the Bible that we don't embrace, we don't adopt or we don't practice. And there's some temptations that sometimes come out of that. We read verses like this and we're either tempted to just sort of ignore them or let our mind wander or be judgmental or be self-loathing, I, I, I don't know, I, I don't know what your, what your temptations are, but I just want to sort of highlight that ahead of time, and say, let, let's let our defenses down for a second, let's come to God's word and, and see what he has for us to hear from him. Verse 44, all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. These uh, verses sound beautiful and idealistic and unrealistic to a lot of our ears. The believers have everything in common. There's no private ownership. They sell their possessions and their belongings. They give to people who have need regardless of whether they've earned it or deserved it. A lot of us sort of scoff at this idea even if part of our hearts are drawn to it. Well, let's just talk about the positive first before we talk about the negatives. Uh, Wouldn't you want to be part of a people that cared about you so much that you could trust that your needs would be as important to them as their own needs were? I think there's a, a part of my heart that gets quickened at verses like this. Like I, I want to be part of a people and of a community and of a faith community where that sort of priority, mutual priority, is practiced. Whereas Paul says in Romans 12 that we would treat one another as more important than ourselves. And, and I think there's a, there's a pull towards that. And maybe some of you have had experiences that Sort of echo that or feel like that for a time. But then there's this hammer of reality that kind of comes in on some of us, and we say, but that's not practical. You can't do that. How would that even work? The IRS would hate that. It sounds like a cult. You know, there's sort of a, objections that start raising up in some of our hearts. And maybe some of those objections even take the form of those of you guys who are more historians. Does it sound like Stalin? I mean, didn't Stalin say something about everyone according to their need? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he stole it from Marx, who stole it from some French guy, but yeah, from each according to their ability to each according to their need was one of the things Stalin said when he seized everyone's property. Um, so is this, is this even practical? Does this even work? Is this just communism? Um, these are good questions to ask, and we're gonna talk more about this next week because Axe Fork dives into the financial part in more detail. But I think it's worth noticing carefully some of what uh, Luke is describing. That the early church voluntarily chose to practice radical generosity towards one another. That they saw one another's needs as a priority and as of importance. And this reflected God's spirit at work in their hearts. As John would write in 1 John 3:17, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That is such a haunting verse for me because we live in an era where we see so many people's needs all the time. And if you don't see them and your phone is listening to me, it's going to pop up an ad for them sometime in the next couple hours, right? We're deluged by the needs of people around us. And it feels like all we can do is kind of close off our hearts for risk of being pulled apart. And so the challenge here of how do we move towards the needs of others, how do we practice generosity towards them, I think is an open question for all of us. Now, before you worry that I'm going to ask you to sell your house, I'm not asking you to do that. In fact, it doesn't seem like very many of the Christians in the first century even did that. Because in verse 46, just a couple of verses later, um, you'll see that they met in people's homes. So even this community that some of them did sell their houses, it apparently was a small slice of them, and a lot of people kept their homes. In chapter 4, again, we'll talk about this next week, uh, you see that more people sold homes, which implied that they didn't sell homes the last time. And when one of them sells the home and then lies about its price, Peter says, it's your home. It's up to you. You have, And then when you sold it, it was your money. Like, it's up to you what to do with it. This is very different than the concepts of communism that we've seen over the last couple uh, hundred years, where it's been compulsory, and it's been state-sanctioned and state-ordered. That's very different than what we see in the New Testament model of voluntary generosity. And I just want to gen- encourage you that if you're new to this church, this is a very generous church where people's needs have been taken very seriously. And I would also say, if you're in a place right now where you feel like you don't have enough to provide for your needs, there are people in this church, and there is a caring fund in this church, that wants to help you be able to provide for the needs that you have, and create a plan to help you be able to to work and provide for the needs for others in the future. So, I don't want to say that we're not doing this, because I think this, you guys are very generous people who do care for the needs of others. But it's also a unique situation in salvation history when this was happening. After all, uh, I mentioned that at Pentecost, a lot of people from around the world had come, and they had come to celebrate a week-long festival, and in the process heard the gospel, and now we're staying for an extended period of time, and so there was this unprecedented opportunity of evangelism and this unprecedented need, and that seems to have been circumstantially what was driving the selling of property. All right. Um, Last part, verse 46. Unity has an impact not just on us, but the world around us as well. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. It seems that Luke describes early uh, Christians' unity as being seen and observed by their neighbors around them and being delighted in by their neighbors around them has this missional impact on the people that were near them. Uh, Again, we get the sort of tension here between the idealistic and what's realistic today, just like we did about selling homes and caring for one another's needs. We get it here where it says, they gathered every day to worship together. And some of us kind of tighten a little bit and it's like, once a week is fine. Once once a month is fine, you know. Uh, this seems seems like a lot, right? Day by day, and before we get too tense about this, it's worth asking: like, what sort of person would go to church every day or go to worship every day? N- non-judgmental answers only, right? What sort of person would do that? Well, there's a very obvious answer: like, the person who likes it, the person who wants to be there, the person who delights in worship and being around God's people. This isn't to say that they disdain the people of the world or that they can't find anything to talk about with their secular neighbors, but it's that they delight in being in a place of worship. And some of you are gifts like that. You're gifts to our church because of your delight. You're in a season of life or you're in a season of your spirituality where being here in worship means the world to you. And you're such an encouragement to me. And I'm so grateful for the way that you enjoy hearing God's word and encouraging one another in worship. Others of you are, are Christians and you remember that time, but for you, you can't wait for this to be over, right? And you, you—if Chris sings that chorus one more time, you're going to scream, um, and and you feel badly about it, and you feel badly about checking your watch, but worship just feels like a drag for you. Being around God's people feels like a drag for you. Um, now, I'm not trying to be critical or judgmental of that. But I am curious. I'm curious about what we do with that with God. right? If unity is God-given, and if we're going to be unified in part by our desire to be together, what do we do when that desire is lacking? What do we, what do, we do with that? And I, I guess I'll, I'll tip my hand on this. I don't think that you're going to experience this the same way over the whole course of your Christian life. There might be some of you that you're a Christian for 60 years and you love going to church every week that whole time. But most of us are going to go in peaks and valleys. And we'll think it's based on our, um, we might think it's based on if the pastor's boring or the music is bad. But a lot of it's also based on our flesh and our sinful nature. And God in his time and in his grace and his kindness is going to reveal to us that often our hearts are far from him. So here's my point if you're in a season right now where you delight in being with God's people, where unity comes really natural to you, where you want to be in worship, you want to learn God's word, you want to be quick to forgive, that is great. That's the work of the Spirit in your life. And that's an encouragement to us and an encouragement to you. If you're in another season of life where this this is difficult to be here, it's painful to be here, it's just boring to be here, that is also God's Spirit at work in you. It's showing you how much growth you and I still have in sanctification before God, that you can affirm before God, God, I believe that it's good to be in worship. I believe that it's good to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And I, and I want to want to do those things. God, would you show me in your grace and in your kindness, your love for me during this time of discouragement? Now, what I, what I wouldn't want for you is to just think, if I just find another church or another church or another church, then, then it'll fix the problem. Uh, I wouldn't want for you to just think the problem's always out there, right? Often the problem is in our heart. And as we look at God's word, we can find a pathway towards unity together. Well, what do I want for you as we close here? Um, practicing your faith leads to unity with other believers, right? Christianity moves us towards people rather than away from them. So if you find yourself consistently pushing back from people, being divided from people, thinking that that no one loves God but you and and no one wants to walk with God but you, it may be more pride than Christian faith. I'd like you to, to look at this passage again this week, especially at verse 42, and ask, what can I do to become the sort of person who from the heart desires to hear God's word, desires to fellowship, desires to be engaged in worship, and desires to pray? Well, in that spirit, let's close our time in prayer. God, I'm grateful for my brothers and sisters here who are such an encouragement to me in their faith, uh, the way that they are committed to learning about you and growing in their knowledge of you. God, we desire to be a people that is unified, not just for our own sake or our own comfort, but also so that we would show accurately what you are like to the world around us. God, I pray for my friends here who are discouraged or in a season of frustration or... um, Worship is just really hard for them right now. Maybe they feel left out or left behind or there's just so much grief or pain in their life that it's hard to come to you. God, I pray in our unity that we would be able to encourage one another and bear with one another in those difficult seasons. In Christ's name we pray, amen.